Welcome to another podcast from the BCC team. Our aim is to bring you a message that will help you live a better, more God-centered life. For more information, go to bccweb.com. So good to see you all this morning. Today is the last uh, day of the series of um, this theme that we've been running through, Can I Have a Better Life? It's been a journey through the book of Ruth. Have you enjoyed this journey? The guys have done a great job communicating and uh, it's just been brilliant. As, uh, as the DVD showed, you can download the podcast either direct actually from iTunes onto your computers um, or through the, through, the, uh, through the app as well. So, so do that. It'll be good, and it enables us to keep in contact with you. Anyway, on to this theme. So today uh, is the final part of the Ruth series, Can I Have a Better Life? And the answer is you can. Can I have a better life? Yes. That's it. So we're all done now. (laughs) That's it. That's the preacher. (laughs) Can I have a better life? Yes. Uh, This morning's theme, it's the very last part of Ruth 4, and I've called it Rewriting Destiny. Rewriting Destiny. Um, Do we believe that God gives us the power to rewrite destiny, do we? The answer is yes, of course he does. We're not called to fit into some world pattern where you are defined by those around you, by those in society, by media, by your employer. You're not defined even by your education, you're not defined by all those things. They're things that uh, you work through, you walk through, and, uh, and you leverage to, to be the person God designed you to be. You have been designed by God, you've been called by God, you are unique before God, and he has given you the ability to be part of that process of redefining destiny, to, to rewriting what the future could be. And this morning we'll look at it, it's a powerful thing. You know, just um, as an anecdotal thing, last week I was um, away with a couple of friends from the church, Rob and Angela, and uh, we were skiing, snowboarding, just managed to get four or five days just on the slopes, and the weather was fantastic. I was hoping for loads of new snow, loads of new powder. There wasn't any, but the next best thing was lots of snow on the slopes, but lots of uh, uh, sunshine. Sunshine's fantastic. When you get to see the landscape, you see the incredibly dark or the blue skies contrasting with the, the, the white of the snow and the sunlight shining. It was just absolutely amazing. And a great opportunity to just go away for a few days, remind myself how to snowboard. Uh, no damage done, I'm back today. But um, it's interesting, I had a new gadget with me and uh, Liz had bought me a GoPro, you know those little video cameras that people stick on their helmets and carry in different places. And they use them a lot for commercials and TV programs to record kind of real life things, high quality. So I had these, this gadget and I bought, I bought um, a load of bits and pieces for this gadget, which were all other gadgets to attach to the gadget. It was a real gadget heaven and I'm not a gadget person. But anyway, I got these gadgets so that I could video, not myself really, but to other people. And uh, it was a bit disappointing because every time there was an accident, I missed it. <laughs> It was so frustrating. The group I was with was so good at snow, uh, skiing. They were just excellent. I thought, are they ever going to have a crash? <laughs> and uh, they were, uh, I didn't, fortunately, not too much anyway. Um, but uh, actually, it was funny because um, 
Rob Short was with us. He's not here, is he? So I can talk about him. <laughs> Rob, uh, he'll be here next service. But, but Rob, um, Rob and Angela, we were together with a couple of other friends. And, um, and Rob did wipe out on the black. It was fantastic. He went backwards down the black run. It was superb. <laughs> and then and I'd turn around and say, what are you doing, Rob, with one ski on? He said, these skis just won't pop off when they're supposed to. But um, anyway, I missed that one. I was so disappointed. Um, so, but it's interesting. You know, um, video imagery, they're, they're powerful tools. They remind us of situations and circumstances. And uh, uh, it's just a, a great little tool. I was talking to a guy the other day called um, Canon Andrew, uh, Andrew Truett, or Truett actually, from Westminster Abbey. I was having lunch with some guys up in London. And he just out of nowhere came out with this comment. He said, did you know how many people watched um, William and Kate's wedding? And I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how many people had, but he, he said it was 2.4 billion people. That's a lot of people, given the population of the world. A lot of people watched that wedding. He said, do you know how many people watched the Olympics? I said, no, I don't. He said, 800 million. He says, three times the number of people watched that wedding on TV and through the internet than they actually watched the Olympic Games. Which is, I mean, I, I'm taking his word for it, but... I, it's extraordinary, isn't it? The power of family, and in particular royal family, the influence of royal family, the influence of people who are in power and have responsibility. But it's more than that. It's about a wedding, the pomp, the circumstance, the event, and it really attracts people. You'd think competition would be far more interesting to people, but, but actually this wedding was just massively observed around the world. People are fascinated by families, and particularly families with influence. Um, in this course of this series, looking at the life of Ruth, can I have a better life? Um, I just want to recap a couple of minor, uh, small points. Just at the beginning, we opened the whole thing up with a disastrous uh, decision made by Elimelech. Remember that? He made that disastrous decision to move his whole family from Israel to, to, Moab, to Moab because of a famine. So a natural trigger, human a society trigger, a humanitarian trigger made him come to a decision. It wasn't the right decision. We know that now, with hindsight, it was the wrong decision. And God didn't bless his life because of that decision. You'd think it would be the right thing to take your family out of a famine situation and put them where there is no famine. You'd think that would be the honourable, parental, fatherly, responsible thing to do. It wasn't the right thing to do. It was an option, but it wasn't the, the right thing to do was to bring his family to God for the answer. That was what this, this uh, scripture is talking to us about. Um, as a result of that wrong decision for the right motive, perhaps, uh, that wrong decision, um, the, their sons, the two sons, eventually died, as you know, and they had no children, even though they were both married. So these things speak of a lack of blessing on, on the family as it, as it journeyed. Um, so in that time of discouragement, Naomi, the wife of Boaz, um, gives her two daughters-in-law the option of what to do going forward. And they realise that God is, is really actively working back in Israel. And, and she realises she needs to go home. And as we know, Ruth then decides to take courage and to move herself from her social context and follow Naomi back to Israel. A choice she made, a difficult choice. It was a cross-cultural change choice. It was a religious change choice, a cultural identity change choice. And sometimes God will drive us to do that. You can't just stay in your cultural context. It's not about your culture. It's not about your context. It's not about your family identity. It's about what God is doing. And what this does is, in the Old Testament, 
Um, it, it's an illustration of how God requires people to see beyond themselves and their context and see, well, what is it that God is doing? Because God will cut right through everything. He will choose to cut through situations to have his will done. And so Ruth decides to return or go to Israel with Naomi, who is now returning. And then, of course, we meet Boaz uh, in the story. And Boaz becomes this family redeemer. Uh, kinsman redeemer and he's the one who has to make a decision uh, to to make uh, or to to re-establish that family line um, through 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 the family uh, as we've discussed so it's a very very interesting set of circumstances it's a story of redemption and the guys uh, over the weeks have covered this brilliantly let's look at Ruth 4 13 to 22 these are the final few verses of of the book of Ruth today so verse 13 in the New Living Translation. So Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for, my, for your family. Uh, may this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Seven, of course, illustrating um, perfection, the, the completion of something that God is doing. Verse 16, Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbour uh, women uh, said, now at last Naomi has a son again and they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. This is the genealogical record of their ancestor Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. This, um, this short story, strangely enough, four chapters about the life of Naomi and then, of course, of Ruth, and then Boaz, and now Obed. It's very, very fascinating that the end of the story ends up with these, this genealogical ten generations summary. It doesn't sound like a very romantic ending to a romantic story. It's, why would you end with these, these ten names? It just seems like such a mechanical ending to a truly romantic story, in a sense. Well, it's because it's not only romance, it's because it's... it's an account of world-changing significance. That's what this is summarising. This is not just a story of the reconciliation, redemption, restoration of a family and God's purpose. It's, it's actually God's eternal purpose being illustrated. So there's, there's a solidity in this. So if we're going to rewrite destiny, if we want a better life, we have the power through Jesus Christ to rewrite our destiny. Um, my first point on this is, uh, the first point is discovery. It's discovering what that destiny journey is about. Discovery. What could you produce? And I believe that God wants us to produce way more than we do. I believe we underproduce. I think we, we live contained lives quite often, um, boxed in often by, by definitions around us. But God doesn't want us to be boxed in. What could you produce? It starts with living a right life before God. Having that right life or working towards a right life. We're not perfect. We're working towards 
sanctification, which is the process of us being like Jesus Christ. We don't suddenly get there because, because of what we've done. It's because of what Jesus is doing in us that's enabling us to change and be like him. And many of us are on this journey. I'm on a journey of change. I'm not, I'm not a finished product. God is, there are many more years of change going on in me, you know, and each one of you are the same. God is, if you sit there and think, well, I'm done, I'm sorted. No, you're not. <laughs> You're just like Richard, who <laughs> thought he was sorted and realised yesterday he's not. <laughs> so it's interesting, isn't it? Um, but let's go to verse 13 just for a moment. Discovery. So Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. That, that one verse summarises at least nine months of activity. <laughs> There's at least nine months, maybe longer, of activity there. It's a very personal history. This is right at the heart of family units. Your family unit, your desire for a family, your history in family is summarised in this one verse about the, the joining together of two people and the production of offspring. It's right at it's really the nuclear core of society, this. And the demonic would have this thing destroyed. The demonic would try and break this thing down, this simple statement of a core nuclear family unit, which is what is summarized in this one verse. The demonic will try and destroy every aspect of what that means or what that should be. And God makes it so simple. Uh, Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. Then, she, then he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. It says she became his wife. He, she wasn't his property. She became his wife. Now you could say, well, actually there was some sort of ceremony, some sort of ritual, some sort of activity, and that was it, she became his wife. I think there's more to this. I think becoming a wife is, not, is a bit like becoming a husband. It's, it's like, you don't just be a husband because you've, you've got married. You don't just be a wife because you've got married. You become, there's a process of becoming. And that, is a, that can be a lifelong journey of that process of becoming. He was, she was not his property, though she would have obviously given herself to him and he to her. Um, she was not his servant. And neither should he respect her uh, or treat her as though she was. But she became his wife. She changed and he changed. So the redemption story required not only circumstantial change, geographical change, cultural change, it required relationship change. There's a relational change. And, uh, you know, society's not brilliant at marriages. It's not great at it. The, the track record of marriage success in our world is not great. Why? Because, because society's not good at defining how marriage should operate. And there's all sorts of debates out there right now, massive debates. Uh, I was listening to GLR a week ago, and almost every time I was listening to GLR, there's debates again about same-sex marriage, again and again and again and again. I'm thinking, this is getting tedious. Why don't you just keep it simple and keep it to God's definition? And debate kicking around all over the place about it. But the steps that Ruth went to, through in terms of the change, in chapter 2, verse 10, she went from being a foreigner. So her first step in the change process was moving from being a foreigner and then chapter, later on in that chapter, we, she's described as being the lowest slave servant. So she moves from being a foreigner to a, the lowest slave servant. In chapter 3, she's described as being a maidservant. Different um, Hebrew words behind these descriptions. So she's, she's kind of moving in relationship and in society or in her pro context. And eventually now, she's, she's described as wife. So she's gone through some steps of change. I know that when I was married, I was going to say when I was first married, but when I got married, um, 
same wife, uh, Liz, she's over at Rock at the moment, so I can talk all about her. <laughs> she's looking after the kids this morning. But no, I, I was thinking about how many things I could tell you that were truly honest. And, uh, and I decided to back off most of them because I was a bit nervous about Liz hearing anything. But I remember when, when we were first married, I thought I understood Liz. Uh, how many guys out there thought they understood their wives when they were first married? How many of you have realised you didn't understand them when you were first married? Uh, for those listening on the podcast, it's the same number of people. Um, so in other words, me like you, I had to go through an immediate change. But I didn't realise I had to go through that change. Um, I just thought my wife had to go through that <laughs> but I think she probably thought the same about me. We, we just, you think the other person's supposed to fit your criteria. And there's just an element of selfishness. It's not intended to be selfish. It just, it's kind of the way people are. You've done things the way you've done things. It's what you've seen, what you've been exposed to in your own families. And you think that that's normal. So for me, Saturday afternoons was all about playing football. <laughs> all about dirty football kit, smelly socks, mud and everything, and dumped in the corner. <laughs> Uh, that wasn't going to work for my wife. <laughs> Let me tell you, after we were married, where, where's your laundry? Oh, it's by the bin. <laughs> it's not in the bin, it's festering. You know, uh, when are you going to be home? Sometime later this evening. <laughs> what were you doing this afternoon? Well, I mean, she wasn't doing this to me. She wasn't grilling me, by the way. She, it was just that in my ignorance, I was behaving as though I was still a single guy, but with the added bonus of being married to a woman. <laughs> but a bolt-on wife. I mean, you just can't live life with a bolt-on wife. You have to change you have to change and and why am i talking like this because we know the narrative of christianity faith in jesus christ is like a marriage this is what this whole story is about you can't just be what you were when you come into a relationship with jesus christ you've got to change you can't just be well you know what i've always done this this way i'm gonna carry on being just as i am but i'll just give him some kind of confession of faith that isn't good enough it's like going to the marriage altar and saying Yes, I, I, I commit to be your husband. But then you go on being Mr. Independent. <laughs> it's not going to work. It isn't going to work. And I think society proves that beyond doubt, that it doesn't work. And so when we come to Christianity, when we come to true faith, when we become followers of Jesus Christ, you can't just say, well, I, I responded to an emotional appeal and that was it. And now I'm saved. I can be exactly what I was like before. You can't. There's a change that has to go on. And you have got to be part of the change. And often I think we want God to make all the changes so that we can adapt ourselves to him. You know, he has to be like our stereotype of what God should be. In fact, what we do is we make God as small as we are. That's what ends up happening. We bring God's greatness into our smallness. And we say, you know what, if I'm going to worship God, he's got to be just like that. Right? Maybe he's made of wood. Maybe he's made of metal. Maybe he's made in the shape of something else. But we make God so small that we lose our faith in him. Because we're making him something that he's not. What we've got to do is change ourselves to identify with the greatness of who he is. And when we change ourselves, we get all the fruitfulness of that relationship truly developing. You cannot have a, a marriage that will last if you don't adapt to what that, that relationship requires. And we've got to ask ourselves, are we willing to change even now? I've heard people preach this, that, you know, I've been a Christian for 35 years. I, I've got nothing else to learn. It's codswallop. It's rubbish. You've got more now to learn than you've ever had to learn before. Because if God's going to trust you, you've got to be trustworthy. He can't, you know, you're, if, you, if you go into a marriage and you're not willing to realize what that marriage union requires, 
you become untrustworthy in that marriage. And when the trust goes out of a marriage, that marriage is broken. That marriage will be broken. So we've got to be willing to change. And how does that change happen? Through communication. We all know it. It's the bread and butter of a good marriage. It's good communication. It's good communication. And yet we're not great at it. And we're all learning about communication. And what does God require? Communication. Read his word. Pray. Prayer. Why do we have a prayer meeting every Wednesday? Why do we do that? Because we want to encourage that discipline of prayer in the life of the church. Because it's sometimes easier to pray when you're with a group. And even then you'll know how many pressures are on you not to come to that prayer meeting because, well, it's been a long, hard day. I've got a busy day tomorrow. I've got a million reasons, got family pressures. But actually that communication with God is so important because you don't just stay married on the day of the marriage. It's the change process that's going on. It's the change. It says, when he slept with her. Why does it say that? Well, because you can't produce something unless you have intimacy. You are never going to produce stuff in your life unless you're intimate in your relationship with God. There's an intimacy. And in fact, I was talking to Vlad about this a little while back, but the, the whole nature of salvation is the intimacy that is so close. It's like that of a husband and wife in terms of true relationship. You can't produce God's result in your life without intimacy that is truly, deeply close to you. Um, God's blessing will come through that intimacy. And then it says that God enabled pregnancy. We know that Ruth was unable to have kids for 10 years. We know that. But God enabled it. In fact, the ESV says it even better. It says God gave her conception. God, it was a gift. God gave her conception. God gave her conception. God will give you conception spiritually. God will give you ministry conception. He will birth something. And that's what I believe God's doing in this church and in your lives. The reason we're together is because we're part, this is like an incubator, this place. Church is an incubator. And those midwives amongst us, you know what it takes to keep some children alive, babies alive, infants alive. It's an incubator. It's a safe place. It's a place where people can be fed, and, but they can't stay in the little units. You know, you can't stay small. You can't stay in the cot. You've got to move out of it. So we've got to grow. We've got to be strong in it. But God gave her conception. God wants to birth something new in broken lives. In fact, every broken life, God wants to birth something in. You may feel that, hang on, your life is just still broken. Let me tell you today, God still wants to birth something in your life. He wants to birth something. And that's why this morning, we're going to, in a few minutes, have a time of worship. And we're going to have a prophetic time in the church. And those of you who just feel that you want God to speak into your life, I don't know how he's going to do it. We're going to worship. And then we're going to, there's two or, th two or three or a few in this church who've got... The, you know, a prophetic element in their lives. We're going to let that loose in BCC this morning. We don't do this normally. So if you're new to our church, we don't normally break into the service like this, but, but that's what happens. It takes a risk. It's a risk process. Um, one thing Angie Coombe said yesterday, which is very interesting, she said the root problems in most people um, lie in what they believe. Dr. Mark Verkler, a study, and I looked it up just to check her out, make sure she was correct. Dr. Mark Verkler, his study um, among Christians revealed that 80% of our thoughts are negative. 80%, Angie mentioned yesterday. In other words, we agree four times as much with the one who is destroying creation than the one who is the author of creation. Four times of the amount of thinking we have in our lives. This is across believers in Jesus Christ. Generally speaking, in churches, four times the amount of thought goes into agreeing with the accuser of the brethren than the author of creation. 
We've got to move ourselves away from the thought patterns that agree with the accuser of the brethren. Because otherwise we minimise ourselves. We've got, why does the Bible say, be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds? It's so that we can agree with the author of creation. Why? Because he wants to create through you. He wants that unique relationship to produce something. In Deuteronomy 8.18, it says in New Living, Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed with your ancestors with an oath. That's a covenant of faith. And we have access to that covenant by faith. Today, by faith, you are saved. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. God gives us the gift of faith to have power to be successful. That's what he's doing. It's a transactional thing. He's giving us that intimacy of relationship so that we can produce. The whole point of that relationship is production. It's not maintenance. It's not your own individual. You know that giving birth is risky. Giving birth is very risky. It's brutal. Even in the 21st century, if you're with your wife and you're able to see a birth taking place, it's brutal. Anything can happen. It's seriously, I mean, I don't know how they survived years ago. I guess it was the mortality rate was very high in previous years. You'll know that if you're somebody who studied it. So God gives the power, and that power in Hebrew, in Deuteronomy, comes from a root word meaning to be firm. It's vigorous. It's, um, in a literal sense, it's a force. God gives you, but figuratively, it's capacity. It means the ability to produce. God gives the ability to produce. You don't have the ability to produce in yourselves. Spiritual stuff comes from God. And if we live in a human-only domain, we're, we're stuck in what humans can produce. But God can give you the power to be successful and to produce stuff that only can be produced in his kingdom. That's what is in this place. We are in an incubated environment where men and women, young people, children can produce incredible things in the kingdom of God. Second key point, dependence. So discovery, discovering what God can do through you. Then dependence. God will produce a son. He'll produce a child. Ruth 4.16, Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast and she cared for him as if he were her own. I'm going to skip through some of these points, but Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast. This is Naomi. Ruth's mother-in-law. This baby was going to be the restoration of, of a relationship for her as well as Ruth. There's a whole restoration for Naomi going on here. She cuddled him, but she didn't just cuddle him. She didn't just have the, the cuddly moment. She cared for him. Cuddling sometimes is an excuse. You can do the cuddling, but you can give the baby back if you're the, the in-laws, the grandparents. But actually there's there is taking care. When God produces something in your life, something that's spiritually conceived, that's supernaturally something he's doing, you've got to protect it. You could watch the baby die by, by handling it badly, by neglecting it. God wants to birth ministry in you, which means that you've got to be trustworthy. You've got to cuddle that thing. You've got to take care of what God's doing in your life. As you take care, you watch it grow. That ministry will grow. That ability to see reproduction in the kingdom of God will grow. It will grow. But if you neglect it, the, when it's young, it will die. You've got to look after it. What God gives you is, is the ability to be responsible for what he's giving to you. John 15, 13 says, There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
No greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's what Jesus did for us. He's our model. He did that for us. We must care for what he gives us. In Ruth 4.17 in the ESV, it says that the women of the neighbourhood gave him a name. This is the only time in the Bible where women gave the name to a child. Did you know that? This is really, really unusual. This is an unusual thing here. And it's not only named by women, but these are women from the community. Um, you may not have picked it up when we read it in the New Living, but the ESV puts it really well. And it says, And the women of the neighbourhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. But wasn't it Ruth who had the son? You see what's going on here? There's a supernatural birthing going on. Naomi's being restored. Um, Ruth is giving birth. And the community have named the child Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What a huge statement of destiny being stated here. The community. And what does Obed mean? It means servant. This, what is produced will serve the purposes of God. What is being produced, so what God produces in you will serve God's purposes, not only in community but in your life. In fact, the community will see what God is producing in you and will probably name it. That's the power of what God will birth through you. Actually, what is the community saying about what is being birthed in you today? What is being birthed in you today? Are, there, are people making comments about what they're seeing being birthed in your life? Well, in this case, it's very figurative. Obviously, it's a child. But the parallel is that what is birthed in us will affect community. And in fact, it should be so powerful that community can define it or at least give it a name. But what's being created, what's being created in us? God's in the business of changing, birthing, resetting. He's breaking the cultural rules of Israel here or the norms of Israel. The, the fact that these women are doing what they're doing is breaking all the, all the habits. Third key point so the first one was discovery, discovering what God's going to birth through you. Then secondly, being dependable. What, is it, what are these dependents like? What will be the result of what God is doing? And thirdly, the descendants. We talked about the genealogy, those ten generations that are rever re 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 um, referenced. So Luke 4.18, this is the genealogical record of their ancestor Perez. You know, somewhere in my history, someone said to me once that um, I have a ancestor who was the Earl of Wiltshire. I'm not sure that's at all true, but it's a nice thought. Um, but it's interesting that the geneal genealogical record of their ancestor Perez, well, there's no reference to Jacob. And actually, Jacob was the descendant before Perez. But, and Jacob's one of the, the famous ones, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Why would Jacob not? He's not even notified. He's not even referenced here. Why is Jacob not referenced? And they run to the, the ten that run up to the ten generations that run to David. You know why? Because David was the notable figure in the Old Testament. And, it, and the, the record, the writer is saying David was an incredible personality in the life of the scriptures in the Old Testament. He was, he's effectively the Old Testament saviour of the nation of Israel, the king of kings in the Old Testament. He's really on a par with Moses, and some would say even greater in some respects. But David was the point of focus. And of course, David is in the direct line, Matthew 1, with Jesus Christ. So they went back 10 generations. 10 years of loss in the life of Naomi, 10 generations, bang, David. It's almost like the past now becomes almost irrelevant. 
It's all about the future. It's what is going to be produced. What is going to be produced? What is going to be produced? What do we need to leave behind? What do we need to focus on? What do we need to leave behind? There might be some great history somewhere in your family, but you might have to bury some of that history because that history is not going to enable you to produce your future. You may need to do that. You know, this week, I mentioned earlier, we've got a whole load of people coming to the site. There's going to be over 100 people coming to BCC who are leaders, different network type people, pastors. One guy's flying in from America for three days. Why are they coming to this site? They're coming to this site because of that gathering. And what's that gathering doing for two days? On one day, they're going to be focused on the Balkans. On the second day, it's going to be on Europe. And why is that happening? Because these guys want to see leaders raised up and churches planted. And that's what they're doing. And to do that, there's a cost. There's a cost. There's a cost to us as BCC to host that thing. There's a cost in terms of time on our team on the site. But God is doing something. And these guys are investing their time. Why are they doing it? Because they know that the cost is worth it. So they're flying in, giving up their time. They're coming. Their pastors coming from all over the UK. But these are men and women who are making change. And that's happening this week. It's an amazing time. Jeremiah 32, 27, New Living says, I am the Lord, the God of all the peoples of the world. Is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for me? We've got to stop God being small and we've got to let God be big. We've got to let God be big. And God wants us to see him in his bigness. We've got to let him be big. Let him be big. Ruth and Boaz had no idea of the change that would take place as a result of their own compassion and loyalty with each other. But they did the right thing in a godly way between each other. And look what happened. Look what God birthed through them. If we have good relationship with each other, we keep short account, we don't allow all the mischief to get in, we keep the unity, keep the trust between each other, keep authentic, keep vulnerable, push things like arrogance and pride out to the side. You watch what God could do. God will birth stuff through, through this church and through you individually. God will reward the faithfulness and the fruitfulness of his people. Jeremiah 29, 13 ESV says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You'll seek me and you'll find me. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Why does God say that? Because there are great and hidden things you don't know. There are great and hidden things you don't know. There are things about your life you don't know. There are things about your future you don't know. There's a, there's a potential in you that you haven't realised. Even in us as a church, there is a potential that we haven't realised yet. So in conclusion, what are we going to do? We're going to submit ourselves to Jesus. We're going to recognise that a better life is all about being willing to be changed by being willing to carry what God wants us to carry, to discover, to recognise what's going to be produced, the dependence and then the descendants of what we carry is going to be important. We are generational and we're building for the next generation, not just for now. This church is about future generations. It's not just today. And every person here is important in that process. Every person here. And God wants to speak into that. So why don't you stand with me this morning? And Adam, why don't you join me?